So we're going to open to 1 Peter 3, and we're going to see some of the general admonitions that Peter has for us as he wraps up his treatment on the vocations we've been covering in terms of the household code texts. And then once we have this done, we've already seen in these texts little references here and there. Of course, here in First uh, Peter um, chapter 2, verse 13 and following, we saw this. Uh, an admonition to uh, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him. So we're going to kind of transition to our relationship to the state as Christians. And to do that, we're going to be turning to Romans chapter 12. And we may also turn to Revelation chapter 12 to get the other side of that coin. We'll just see how our time goes. So for now, um, 1 Peter 3, and let's begin with an invocation and the Lord's Prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. All right, so as we wrapped up with First uh, Peter and his admonition to uh, wives and to husbands, we saw here in 1 Peter 3 uh, an, uh, an occasion in which it appears to be that if you had a pagan married couple, the wife had converted to Christianity, but not the, yet the husband. There is a little ambiguity to the point where some will assert that, well, maybe the husband's were, in fact, converted, but in any case, they weren't obedient to the word. So if you look back at chapter 3, verse 1, likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, most take that to be that they're not converted. Okay, so you have a Christian and an unbeliever. Now, a Christian should not go out and marry an unbeliever. Paul makes that very clear. What does light have to do with darkness? But if you were both unbelievers and then, in this case, the wife became a Christian, now what? And this is really answering a different question than the kind of question being answered in a text like Ephesians, where Paul sets before us the mystery of Christ and his church, and husbands love your wives as Christ loves the church, wives love your husbands as the church loves Christ. And sometimes we say, well, that's a Christian marriage. And in some sense, that's true. But here we have a case where there's a Christian and unchristian. Do they have a Christian marriage? Probably the better way to look at it, rather than defining what exactly is a Christian marriage, is to assert that you, if you have a Christian who is married, you have a Christian marriage. And now what is the shape and form that that takes? One of the big problems with defining a Christian marriage is not only if you have one believing and one unbelieving spouse, but if you look at the Old Testament, you have a whole bunch of 
Christian saints who believe in the Christ who is to come, who have particularly messy marriages, or at least from our view, messy marriages. You obviously have some polygamous marriages. You have fraudulent marriages. You have marriages that are political in nature, marriages that are economic in nature, marriages where the man and the woman have no choice in the matter. They're going to be married, thus saith both sets of parents. All right, so we've got a great deal of uh, messiness, for lack of a better word, when we look at the biblical data about marriage. I might even call to mind uh, one of the prophets. Do you remember Hosea? God said for him to marry, do you recall? Gomer the prostitute. And of course, after they got married, she completely repented, cleaned up her act, and was a model wife. (laughs) No, not at all. But interesting, that example, because in a strange way, that does in fact reflect the reality of Christ and his church in a very different way than Paul would take it, but in the way that Yahweh pursues his wife, Israel, even though she is unfaithful, constantly chasing after other gods. Thus, her idolatry becomes an adultery, you see. So we have a Christian in marriage and we have a Christian marriage. And I think that that's a better way for us to perceive marriages then. So whether your marriage is just, you know, nine out of ten, what St. Paul describes, uh, you, you're the husband loves his wife as Christ loves the church and The wife submits to her husband as the church submits to Christ, and you're just 9.9 out of 10. You got it. Or whether you find yourself somewhere on that sliding scale of messiness, there is a word of the Lord for you and a promise for you that he hasn't forsaken you. You don't have some kind of terrible, wretched marriage from which you can never recover and you have to live now and for all eternity in shame. That's simply not the case. He looks to help you with your vocation, with your calling. And Okay, what is the shape and form of that in this case or that case? So I think that that's worthwhile calling to mind simply the difference that we see from a text like 1 Peter 3 where right off the bat we're given this example of what we would see as a unideal marriage and something like Ephesians where it's just presented as hey you've got two believers this is what you should aspire to be once we get through with husbands and wives and of of course we've touched on slaves and masters we've touched on government we've touched on many and various vocations here we get into verse 8 and I simply want to do this because it's part and parcel of his argument here he says, finally, all of you, 1 Peter 3a, finally, all of you, so irrespective of your particular vocations, have homophrones, which is sameness of mind, unity of mind. So that's what we're, that's what Peter would have for the church, for 
Christians to pursue unity of mind. Sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, which of course, Vicar's sermon on splachnitzomai, is that the right word? Splachnitzomai, the onomatopoeia, the sense of the, or the sound of the sacrifice hitting the floor, the guts hitting the floor. Boy, I'll never get that image out of my head. Uh, But the splachnitzomai, that tender compassion of God on the basis of the sacrifice, is at the root of tender heart. It's oisplachnoi. Oisplachnoi. Have a tender heart. A a heart uh, after the image of sacrifice might be a way to think of that. And a humble mind. A tender heart and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling. So this is one of the unique ways that Christians stand out in their various vocations, whether it's your, in your relationship with your spouse or your child or your parents or your boss or your workers. Don't repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, and there's the language of calling from which the Latin vocatio and and calling in the proper sense. For to this you were called, that you may obtain, and the language here is more specifically inherit, a blessing. Now, quoting from Psalm 34, Whoever desires to love life and seek good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Then Peter continues, Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. It's a provocative question, isn't it? Now who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good? Um, yeah, a lot of people. No good deed goes unpunished. And how did it go for our Lord, who uh, above all was zealous for good? He was crucified. Thus, verse 14, Peter answers his own question here in this way. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. And I think that that's the key. So don't expect commendation. When you suffer for righteousness sake, don't expect a reward from it. Don't expect someone to appreciate you or applaud you or bring it up. And in fact, you can take great comfort in this because in so doing as you do so, your heart honors 
Christ the Lord as holy, and he sees, and he who sees in secret will reward you. It's that Matthew 6 kind of language. That's why I say, if nobody commends you for doing the right thing, don't fret it. Don't worry about it. Christ sees. All right, he continues, verse 15, with his same sentence, and famously always being prepared to make an apologia, from which we get apologetics, a defense, to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. So you have the hope that is in you in Christ Jesus. And when people see that hope, and how again are they going to see that hope? If not by, in all likelihood, how you're conducting yourself, what you're doing, what you're saying, etc. They're going to see or perceive that hope that is within you. And they may ask you about it or challenge you and that's your opportunity to give a defense for the hope that is within you. That's your opportunity to bear witness and if that witness is met with some sort of contradiction to humbly, kindly put that contradiction uh, down so that they can receive the same hope in themselves that is already in you. So, Peter continues with this very thought, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good. Ooh, do we believe this? It is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Okay, so I think that that's an important way to close it out because we do get this language of vocation. We do get these general instructions Um, we do realize that what is set before us is not necessarily the path to earthly success. And that has more to do with, I think, us as Americans. Like, well, if I read the manual and do the manual, then it's supposed to work. And that's how the vocational instructions in the scriptures, the house toffle or household code text, can strike us if we're not careful. Like, okay, well, I've done X, Y, and Z, so... Why isn't this better? And I think here you have the promise that, look, there's no, this isn't a pragmatic solution. This isn't a magical instruction kit to getting a better marriage or relationship with your kids or workplace environment. Rather than being pragmatic, this is a matter of worship and self-sacrifice, and our vocations are directed toward God. So honoring Christ the Lord as holy and then being ready, in fact, not to be praised or commended, but to uh, suffer. It's not to say that there isn't the promise of blessing. I mean, that's this business about quoting 34. I think he does a great job doing both sides of the coin. That Look, if you desire to love life and see good days, these are good principles to follow. They're just not a guarantee of that. And so you've got these two sides of, of that coin. The large catechism talks exactly this way as you go through the commandments. It's, hey, if you want to do all these things, you're going to be blessed um, by God. And that's true. It's just you may also suffer, and that too, oddly, is a kind of blessing.
And here too, I like this section and including it in because it has to do, you know, I'm always asked the question as we go through these, well, what about witnessing? And one of the the key ideas of vocation is that as you're conducting yourself in a manner different than the Gentiles, you're standing out to them and men are seeing your good works and being prepared to glorify God in the day of their visitation. And so, and the way that you conduct yourself, you're, you're like salt in the world, you're like light in the world, and men will be drawn to you, and there's your opportunity to declare the hope that is within you and defend that hope that is within you, giving an apologia or defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for that hope that is in you. Okay, so that's about all I have to say about that. Let's, um, let me see if you have any feedback, any questions, comments, dialogue on this section. Otherwise, we're going to shift gears over to Romans then. All right. Very good. Let's um, go to Romans 13. And in order to get just a little bit of context, especially for our purposes in this particular study, it would be good to just flip back to the start of Romans 12. We'll take in a couple verses here and try to gain the general sense for where we are in Paul's argument. You can see in verse 1 of chapter 12 that it is the beginning of a new section and a good place for a chapter break. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Someone's winning the lotto over there, it sounds like. You make sure and share. I can't remember where I I was traveling with my family and I grabbed my phone that had the directions where we were going and we were walking into this really sketchy gas station in the the middle of the night and in my pocket it's like, um, turn right to get to your destination. I'm like, you know, the whole place turns and looks at you. Great. All right. Well, at least everybody knows I'm lost. and. Siri. She keeps us on our toes. Siri, call mom. Calling 911 now. No, 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 no. Stop. Okay, so um, in, uh, yeah, we have, this, we have this transition in 12. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. And this has been one of the themes we've talked about that's inherent in vocation. That that's, it's part of our identity as what Peter calls royal priests or a holy, a holy priesthood. Priests offer sacrifice. That's what they do. What sacrifice do we offer? Ourselves and specifically our bodies. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God which is your spiritual worship. And I think that that ties ni- nicely right with where we left off. That, again, this isn't, carrying out our vocations isn't like, well, hey, God, I did X, Y, and Z. Why didn't it all get better? 
You missed the point. In doing X, Y, and Z, this is your spiritual worship. This is your bodily sacrifice. And then he continues, do not be conformed to this world. Okay. So as a general attitude, we stand in antithesis to this world. Elsewhere in the scriptures, friendship with the world is friendship with God. Friendship with the world is enmity with God. And so here too, we're set in opposition to the world. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. By the way, this is the same word um, for transfiguration, the metamorphosis word, um, when Jesus is transfigured on the mount. And in fact, this is kind of a lost way of talking about sanctification. But sanctification is the process of being transfigured. Our Lord at his transfiguration instantaneously reveals who he is. It's it's as if when he was hiding his divine nature and um, this is the safe route. It's as if when he's hiding his divine nature, um, that suddenly goes away and everyone can see his divine nature shining through his clothing and face, etc. There are other takes on this, that this is in fact not necessarily his divine nature shining on the mountaintop, but his sinless human nature. And that here is reason why Adam and Eve did not perceive themselves to be naked though they were. They too were shining with the light of the sun. And when they fell into sin, that shining was lost and they realized, whoa, get the fig leaves. So that's an interesting take. And I think it's a fun way of looking at the scriptures, maybe even an instructive way of looking at the scriptures, that when Jesus is doing all the stuff that we immediately go, well, that's just Jesus doing his divine stuff, may not in fact be the case. That may be Jesus showing us very human stuff. In terms of faces shining, can you think of a sinful face shining in the scriptures? Moses, I think I heard. Yeah, Moses. So that when the fellowship with God is restored, when fellowship between God and man is restored, man takes his proper place as shining, as sons of light. Similarly, Jesus walks on the water and we all think, well, that's Jesus doing his God stuff again. But Peter says, Lord, if it is you, tell me to come to you and I'll walk on the water too. And Jesus doesn't say, Peter, you're not God, knock it off. Only I can water ski without a boat. No, he brings him out. And the only reason Peter falls is because he takes his eyes off of Jesus and notices he sees, the text says, the wind and the waves. And down he goes. So the human being, Peter, in right relationship with his eyes on God, walks on water, no problem. As soon as he takes his eyes off of God and loses that fellowship, he goes down and has to be rescued. It's an interesting thesis. So when we think then, and this is an older way of thinking of sanctification, that we are what Christ reveals to us in an instant, whether that be his divine nature or his true human nature, 
shining through. Uh, we likewise are being transfigured or transformed. And that's precisely what Paul is saying here in verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal, it's going to say, of your mind. So you can also see here that there's a dichotomy because it's one or the other. It's a binary proposition. It's going to be one or the other. You, don't, you can't be neutral in this. You're going to be conformed to the world, which is going to make you subhuman, or you're going to be transfigured, transformed by the renewal of your mind, which is going to make you fully human. Does that make sense? That by testing, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Okay? And so that testing has to do ultimately with, so if we just state tight to his frame, you're offering your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God as your spiritual worship. And as you go about that, you're making sure you're not being conformed to the world, but rather being transformed in the renewal of your mind. And then as you go along conducting yourself in this priesthood, you are all the while testing so that you may discern what is the will of God what is good and acceptable and perfect. This indicates the mistakes will be made, otherwise there wouldn't be any testing involved. But that's then what we're called to do, to find the will of God, what is good and acceptable and is perfect. Now, do we do that by like closing our eyes and waiting for God to speak into our hearts? No, that wouldn't be St. Paul's point. But rather, we take those very things that God has given us, the light of his word, And we walk forward in that light, and thus we discover very concretely in our lives what that word means. So it's like Luther's, consider your place in life according to the Ten Commandments. Okay, But what does that concretely look like in this particular situation? That's what you have to test, that you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Okay, I see a hand popping up. Uh, The testing requires wisdom. And that wisdom is coming from the Word of God. Mm -hmm. That, like, takes not just verses, but it takes a long, the long journey of learning daily, day and night, us to really get a, you know with our limited mind and all these temptations that we have in the world because it says not conforming uh, to this world and we don't realize what is conforming to this world because every a lot of things appears that is very good uh, and and can you explain a little bit more about how to get to the right testing mm-hmm. to get that wisdom 
Sure. Okay. I would say that in the broadest possible sense, which may in fact be the most helpful, even though it's not specific, is not to be conformed, that it's a matter of worldview and it's a matter of framing, it's a matter of perceiving life rightly, and you're not going to be conformed to the world but transformed in the renewal of your mind. That renewal language is baptismal language, so it's being transfigured into the image of Christ. Okay. Now, maybe to zoom in more concretely, um, but not be overly specific yet at this point, I think that women, for example, you can learn to be a wife from the sitcoms, um, from the TikTok girls, or you can learn to be a wife from scripture and the biblical view, but not both. And melding the two is going to be disastrous. Now, we're in this this fallen world, and we have a part of ourselves that's fallen, and so we're all swimming in this polluted fish tank, and so we're sure to constantly get this wrong in many and various ways. But the point would be to fetch that out, like, okay, how did I get this wrong? How is that according to the world? And then repent of it, not only in the sense of like, oh, I feel sorry I did that and I confess it to God, but in the sense of like, no more of that. I'm turning away from that to something better. And that something better is being transformed in the renewal of your mind into um, the biblical vision of what it is to be a woman in this particular case. I mean, it's just as easy for men. Um, You you know, you get your LinkedIn bio and you start making yourself look really good and important and... Um, get on uh, YouTube and find out how to improve yourself. You start watch, watching all the self-improvement stuff. and you, know, you, you just you have to be, I think this is where the testing comes in. Like, okay, well, how much of that is good and according to, and good in the objective sense, according to the will of God, and how much of that only appears to be good but is really being conformed into the image of the world? I mean, so for men, it's kind of like, hey, yeah, it's good for men to be physically fit and able to do things around the home and help your family and protect your family and that kind of stuff. But can that be taken too far to where you're, you know, doing chest bounces in the mirror every morning? Yeah, probably so. So you've got to test and discern what is being conformed to the world, in this case like vainglory or vanity, versus being conformed in the image of God. You might draw the line and say, okay, stewardship. That's going to take some testing and some figuring out, and it's not just going to be spelled out because our cultures and contexts are so different over millennia. But the Holy Spirit in his wisdom gives us this general advice that, look, it's between being conformed to the world and transformed into Christ. Those are the two poles. So now, Um, By testing, we want to discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So that's some trial and error and some figuring out. And again, it's very, I mean, humanly speaking, it's impossible. But with God, all things are possible. That's, we're fish, you know, we're damaged fish swimming in this contaminated tank, and we've got to figure out what on earth is good. We're already working with instruments that are damaged, our own reason and senses of what's right and wrong. So we have to have... God's word as that objective and healing truth that then forms and instructs our consciences, forms and instructs our minds, and then ultimately even transforms our emotions as well. 
So in the classic or ancient view of psychology, uh, suke is soul, so the, the study of the soul of man. Man is always broken into these three components. By the way, this, this has life all the way through the Christian church in the West um, and is talked about even by our Lutheran fathers up to at least, I think, the 19th century. And then, um, yeah, and then as psychology in the secular sense of the word took over, we lost these paradigms and just vacated the field and said, oh, they're the ones that know what they're talking about. That was a really stupid mistake because they don't. But in the classic view of psychology, uh, man consists, male and female consists, of uh, chiefly these three parts. You have intellect, emotions, and in the middle, will. Now, with a fallen intellect and fallen emotions, we're easily to reason ourselves into the wrong way, and we're susceptible to feeling ourselves you know, into the wrong way. This is how I feel, this is what I think, and we're liable to go the wrong way. So, the will cannot latch hold of itself, or it's going to go the wrong way. The will in the center has to latch hold of God's word, not being conformed to the world, but being transformed in the... And then with that comes the mind, and then later on the emotions, because the emotions are always slower. That's where the, it's really good psychological advice. Fake it until you make it. Because it's, you have to make the decision in your mind to do this thing, and then the emotions and the reality and the form come along later. That's just how it works. If you want to start a habit, you don't sit around and like wait until you're like good and ready to, you know, I've been thinking about this forever. No, you just do it. It's, you start doing it, and then the habit is formed. And maybe you even hate doing it, but then it gets easier and easier and lighter and lighter. And so that's the same kind of principle. Okay, so that might help you in some concrete ways in which the church in the West has thought about it in terms of classic psychology of the, the intellect, the emotions. The emotions are always slowest. The intellect's a little quicker. Um, but, when, but the will itself has to latch hold of God's word, and that's where the chief battle is, and then the mind and the emotions follow. <clears throat> okay? Yes, please. Yes, if, I, if we can go back a little bit when you discussed the uh, uh, witnessing kind of through our vocation... Sure. Uh, if you could comment on, and if you don't want to comment on it, that's fine. Uh, comment on the uh, evangelists that you'll see at the at sporting sporting events down at the beach, different places, with these large, you know, six foot banners uh, that they march around with, and mm. and oh, uh, yeah. they're kind of obnoxious, but yet they're very pietistic, and it. I think it strikes people as um, almost offensive a lot of the time. It just if you could comment on that, because they're not doing that through their vocation; mm-hmm. they're just doing it. And I'm not, I'm not sure how successful they are, if ever. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you have a comment on that, that'd be great. Yeah. So it might be cleanest to not try to make a judgment on the basis of the individuals involved. Um, we'll leave that to the Lord, uh, whose place it is. But if this, if I thought this was the right thing to do, then I'd be uh, having sign-ups in the newsletter to go and tell people they're going to hell this weekend at the USC game. 
if the Lutheran Church of Missouri Synod thought this was a good idea, this would be being pushed. If anybody other than these strange little cults thought that this was a good idea, it would be being pushed universally. You'd have the Roman Catholics down there and the Eastern Orthodox and everybody else, but you have no one. You have no one but these little cults. So I think the vast majority, like probably 99.9% of Christianity has made its judgment and said, yeah, that's probably not a helpful thing. If God wants to convert people through that, God can do it, but God can convert people through anything. It doesn't justify it, right? So I think the church overarchingly, cross-denomination, has said no to that. Um, I don't want to judge the individual people involved. They may have good motives or bad. I, I kind of commend their bravery. I mean, <laughs> I can appreciate that. But I do think it potentially also gives Christians a bad name because, you, you know, you, hey, I know you Christians. You're just the fire and brimstone people. It's like, yeah, well, we're not that kind of Christian. We Lutherans have that worst of all. Not only are we not that kind of Christian, but... It's like we're Catholic, but not that kind of Catholic. We're evangelical, but not that kind of evangelical. We're Lutheran, but not that kind of Lutheran. We're LCMS, but not that kind of LCMS. Huh. It just gets narrower and narrower, doesn't it? It's terrible. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, that's about all I have to say about that. (laughs) Good question. All right. Anything else we want to talk about? Are we ready to go on? Okay, so by way of just kind of laying the foundation of where we are, this living sacrifice is really the source and frame for the way that Paul's treating the Christian life in these sections of Romans. And he goes on with many such exhortations. If you just jump forward to uh, verse 9, I'm almost picking it arbitrarily, you're going to see what I mean by this section of, of general admonitions. Let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good, love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor, do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer, Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. And on and on it goes. So, um, from this fountainhead of considering yourselves uh, as living sacrifices and as priests, that's what's inferred, offering the living sacrifice, which is your body, being transformed into the renewal of your mind, not conform to the world. And then we kind of get into like, okay, what is that transformation? What does that transfiguration and renewal of your mind look like? And that's why we're going along with these general admonitions. Verse 14, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep, live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves. But leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And that ties in with the Petron ideas we just looked at, that our duties are 
you know, are rendered unto the Lord as holy worship, as sacrifices to Him. And when evil is done us, we simply entrust it to Him. Um, I think here, beautifully, we have a corrective on kind of the mushy, Birkenstock-wearing, hemp-smelling Jesus of the 21st century, where, you know, he's just, hey, peace, man, don't do, you know. Um, and then, oh, vengeance is, vengeance is wrong. That's not what the scriptures say. Scriptures don't say that vengeance is wrong. They say vengeance is mine. Right? So it's wrong for us to take into our own hands and enact vengeance. But vengeance belongs to the Lord. And we need to entrust that. And boy, if you ever get a glimpse of that happening, I don't know, it sobers you up really fast. And you go, okay, I need to be a little more careful with how much I like, really ask for vengeance. Because when God goes about it, he goes about it. It's, it's kind of akin to that old statement, the wheels of justice go grind very slowly, but they grind very fine. And that's true. I mean, when God gets around to it, he gets around to it. You can think of all the cultures historically that rejected him and rejected his gospel. And it's like he endures with them for what seems like forever, and then he doesn't. I forget how many years. It was like decades and decades, maybe even over 100 years um, between the time in which he told Moses to, or, or Moses, Noah, to build the ark and before the rains came. I mean, so Noah's got all this exposure. He's out there building the ark in the middle of the desert. And he's kind of thinking, okay, is this really going to happen or not? And he's getting mocked and laughed at and everything else. And it seems like it's taking forever. But then when the rain starts falling, it falls fast. And that's the way of God's judgment. I think to a degree, sadly, even we've seen that in our own country, just how precipitous everything feels and how fast everything feels. It's some unthinkable things from 10 years ago even, and that's no time at all. I mean, it's, it's just nothing. So, um, yeah, I think that that's what we need to keep in mind is vengeance is mine. It's not evil, and the Lord is the one who says he will repay. So then knowing that God will handle the justice side of things... That frees us. Thus, verse 20, To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. And then, for by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And I think that is the sense in which uh, you are heaping burning coals on his head. Let me see if the... If the study note agrees with me here or not. Oh, no, it doesn't. So, uh, in well, I don't know. In Psalm 140, this image is a sign of harsh, harsh judgment. Okay, but Paul's quote from Proverbs 25, 21 through 22 points toward driving the enemy to repentance. Oh, good. Okay, great. So, yeah, that's the way I take it, too, is that by being kind and heaping hot coals, it's not like, so that's a foretaste of the feast to come, you bad guy. Like, that's not the point. The point is rather that you are driving them to repentance. Thus, verse 21, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And you can know that, I mean, if you do good and you suffer evil for it, again, vengeance is mine. So you don't, I mean, that's, it's kind of the terrifying statement that nobody gets away with anything. Um, Jordan Peterson, 
I, who's probably not yet a Christian, but he's, he understands that bit about the law, if you've ever heard him talk about it, um, that no one gets away with anything. And he's got it from a psychological angle and from decades of working with people who have made disasters of their lives through various grievous sins and violations of what he refers to as the cosmic law. He's talking about the natural law and how it's only a matter of time until those chickens come home to roost. It's only a matter of time until you reap what you sow. And he makes the bold statement that even in terms of psychology and interpersonal dynamics, no one gets away with anything. I think that that's a really refreshing take for us as Lutherans who all too often look at the law rhetorically as if it's just a wagging finger saying you're naughty, but you can completely ignore it because Jesus. Uh, No, it's not quite like that. Um, You can be forgiven. God can treat us not as our trespasses deserve. That's true. But there's also a sense in which you don't, in fact, get away with anything. It's a cosmic law. Like, like almost like cause and effect or gravity or something like that. That would be better to think about than a penal code that you may or may not get dinged by by some, you know, heavenly police officer. That's not what's in view. So to overcome evil with good, knowing that God will handle his business, we're freed to be merciful to our enemies and in so doing overcome their evil with our good. Okay, and then that leads us up to um, verse 13, which it's questionable if you need a paragraph break there. Um, The editors have obviously put one in and whoever was riding his horse creating the chapters and verses um, have you heard that one? Guy who was creating the chapters and verses? Because this all happens like well after the Reformation. That as he was doing so, he was riding on a horse. And so <laughs> that's just wherever his pen happened to hit. <laughs> it's pretty accurate. So we'll just run through it here. I know we're short on time, but this will wet our taste buds for the feast of next week. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. So if Hitler is in power, then Hitler has been put in power by God. And if Hitler tells you to commit atrocities, you should commit atrocities. And anyone who does otherwise is subject to judgment. Does that sound right? I hope not. So we'll get into next week what exactly these verses mean. And we're going to make the key distinction between the authority itself and the person in authority, or the office, and the man. And we'll see how that distinction has been made by Lutherans all the way up to the present. The Lord be with you.